Hello and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in the Los Feliz area of Los Angeles. We're the kind of Christians who like the Bible a lot, but we're not going to thump you with it. We believe in the world-changing power of Jesus and the present-day work of the Holy Spirit to change things. Right now, the whole world is in a process of adapting to new realities, and so are we. Building community and sharing all this love and power suddenly seems like it might become a bit more challenging. But really, how lucky are we that we're facing all this in the 21st century? Throughout the duration of this new world coronavirus order, we'll be doing all of church online, but we're not afraid. We worship a God who is bigger than all of this, who's seen it all before, and will work all things together for the good of those who love him. We love you, and we're here. Stay in touch and enjoy this podcast. It's been about 15 years, um, but in March 2020, at the start of all this, how together we felt. It was when we were all busy cancelling things and just adjusting to this new thing, fueled by the adrenaline, by the natural state of shock. And we just wanted to be there for each other. And we loved each other, even though we didn't know each other. And we talked to strangers on the street from safe distances. And we just felt so together. And then the adrenaline wore off and the novelty wore off and it's actually quite hard to see each other's humanity when our faces are covered in masks and anyway it's just not the same for me as it is for you some of us have lots of time on our hands and are thinking of brilliant and imaginative ways to fill it some of us really don't we have less time and less space and less ability to take deep breaths and open spaces without someone asking us to wipe their bottoms i'm not actually talking about me we're a family of self-wipers Ed has improved no end during lockdown. Some of us are more busy and overwhelmed with our jobs. Some of us are desperate for the purpose that having a job would bring. Some of us are in desperate need of space, but some of us are alone, longing for company. Some of us are really feeling the pressure of our small apartments and close neighbours and really don't want to hear the whining of other people with more space and advantage talking about how hard they're finding this. And I haven't even started on the obvious difference between most of us and the frontliners who we dutifully whoop and holler and bang pans for every night. But I can't help wonder as things drag on how untogether with us they must feel. And Maybe not all refuse collectors and shelf stackers and transit workers are doing their jobs because they want to look after us. They are disproportionately the lower paid members of the workforce after all. And I'm imagining from my privileged air conditioned duplex that they have just as much fear about their well-being as the rest of us. Ed and I talked long and hard this week about what to do with the teaching from here. They don't train you um, on how to adapt when your church has to go online in seminary. <laughs> I didn't actually go to seminary. But um, we thought it would be good to start a new series um, at this point to give us all a sense of continuity. And we've decided on a teaching on our origins. This talk today is about the human compulsion to compare and to focus on the proverbial speck in someone else's eye when we don't feel together with the proverbial chips down. This pandemic 
has shone the worst of lights on that, I think. And it takes us to funny places. And so I wanted to make some sense of that, but I am going to take this moment to confess what I hope is the worst thing that I did this week. Despite my awareness of the cortisol that was flowing through my veins as I typed and my fast beating heart and all my good sense, I willfully ignored my conscience, the little voice that said, hey, why don't you just leave it for 10 minutes and still see if you still want to say that? And I hit send on a public Facebook comment to a guy I know in London who had posted, it's actually irrelevant what he posted. My response was personal and mean and uncharitable and snarky and will have enlightened him in the things I believe he needs to be enlightened in, in no way. It also contained two errors, including your rather than you are. I have since apologised and deleted the post. We, um, we actually did a series on creation and the fall accounts in the first three chapters of Genesis a while back, and it was one of the most well-received series we've ever done. So if this one itches a tickle, then do go back and find those on the podcast. It just felt like where we are now, grappling with what we're grappling with, it might be a good time to pick this series up on where it all began. So I'm just going to give you a very quick reminder of the very important historical background and context to Genesis. So this very, very long book, which is split into two unequal parts. Chapters 12 to 50 are the patriarch stories, the origins of Israel. But I'm speaking on the first chunk today, specifically Cain and Abel. But there's some really important stuff to know about these first 11 chapters. So we're just going to start there. Somewhat counterintuitively, this bit of the book was written quite a long way into the history of the Jewish people. And not everyone would agree on this, but it's reasonably widely held that this section was written about a millennia after Abraham was born, during the period of Jewish exile in Babylon, and very much written to address that. And Alice mentioned uh, all this last week, but it's hard to overstate the level of trauma that the exile wrought. Having, as a people, once had the land, the temple and the king that they believed God had promised would last forever, they were now captives once more as slaves in a foreign land. It's all fallen apart. Everything has been thrown into question. And so this opening section of what we know of the Bible was written as they clung to their faith in their God and his call. Very, very much in response to the folly of King Solomon, who, like Adam, Cain and Esau, grabbed at more and both he and Israel collapsed as a result. These stories from Genesis have striking similarities to old creation myth and cosmology from neighbouring Near Eastern cultures that predate these stories by hundreds of years. Things like the weekly pattern of divine activity, six days of action followed by a day of rest. That's a well-attested sacred narrative in the Mesopotamian and Ugaritic literature. The first man and woman's adventures with the tree of life and the snake and the, good, and the knowledge of good and evil. And also a wrathful god, an impending flood with a hero who builds a boat for grain and animal, who sends out a dove to check for the dry land. All of that's in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which was written a lot earlier. The point here isn't that Genesis plagiarises them. These stories echo, but they also respond. The myths are transformed in masterful storytelling, serving a revolutionary view of God and his relationship to his creation. 
God isn't vengeful or petty. God didn't create mankind as an afterthought like the Mesopotamian gods. Our God did all of this for mankind. He is all-powerful and without competitor. And he is supremely concerned with our welfare. The first 11 chapters also take a firm stand against ancient Mesopotamian's belief that humanity was ever progressing. These stories show mankind's perpetual screw-ups. The screw-up, then another chance, then a screw-up, then another chance, um, leading to a man from Ur, the centre of these corrupted lands, and God's plan all along, who he called to leave his homeland, build a new nation, so that all nations of the world should find blessing. For all its gloom about sin to our eyes, Genesis is a fundamentally optimistic book, revealing that God's purpose for us will all be achieved through the offspring of Abraham, pointing all along, all the way along to the good news, the goodest news that will ever be, the goodness of God at the heart, his love central to everything, and the total restoration of all that is broken that Jesus brings. News that seems even gooder when we see how long it was being pointed towards. So let's pick it up where we left off last time with Genesis 4. Hi, I'm Alexandria. I'll be reading from Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering for the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the first of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do what is not right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked Abel and, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied, am I a brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened his mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Every single thing we're told about Cain leads us to prepare for his dominance. His name means create. It implies he is celebrated and well thought of. He is the privileged heir and a worker of the ground, just like his father. And to a Hebrew listener, they'd have known that the firstborn son inherited the land tilled by the father. So he'd also been given time, instruction, guidance and fatherly counsel. Abel, on the other hand, has a name which means to be empty or in vain. 
Eve makes no comment about his birth. And he would have had to fend for himself as a shepherd, which was a far more dangerous occupation in untamed space against the elements and wild animals with no mentor or instruction. And both sons bring God an offering. We can assume that they both bring their best and that they both had reason to anticipate acceptance. There is nothing to indicate that God must prefer one or discriminate, nor is there any hint of prior rivalry. And we get very little information on around why God favoured Abel. This non-disclosure in the story is, I guess, what universalises the message. It's like the listener is just taken to already know this. Life is unfair. God acts and doesn't act, chooses and doesn't choose. And for the record, this is a literary device and God doesn't have favourites. So this story, this first story about the firstborn of human history, is not about murder or envy. It's about unfairness, injustice, and our responses to that. There's a big moment, quite a big detail actually, in terms of the narrative account of, of the information that we're given. It's before Cain does anything wrong, where God asks him, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do right, will you not be accepted? It's a challenge. If you do better, I'll love your offering too. God, creator of everything, is not vengeful or vindictive. He's offering him a solution. In another light, of course, there's nothing unfair about this. Abel has overcome adversity and pleased God with what he brought. The point is, God isn't dismissing Cain. He's engaged with dialogue with him, trying to console and encourage the older, now lesser brother. He's not a helpless victim. God reminds Cain of his freedom. He can make the choice to make himself and the world better. But Cain hears the challenge as more salt in the wound and murders his brother in cold blood. The theme of fratricide is not an uncommon story motif. The ancient Greeks and Romans used it. Shakespeare loved a bit of it. Disney's Lion King ripped it off him. Even George R. R. Martin dabbles in it um, to all of our throne-loving delight. Tales of sibling rivalry take us to places most of us can relate to. Our siblings can know us and love us and hurt us like almost no other. They are our natural point of comparison for who we are in the world. I have four sisters. I know what I'm talking about. In fact, even if we don't have siblings, I'm sure there's something that every single one of us can relate to in the juxtaposition of privileged, expectant older brother versus hard-working, downtrodden underdog. These injustices speak to us about the haves and have-not experiences that we've had in the world. Experiences that really do get very tightly wound and tightly locked up. I think that some of the deepest, most insipid wounds that many of us have are wounds of comparison. We might think that um, ancient Hebrew sacrifices aren't relatable matters to us today, but actually we've all toiled the land to please a boss, laboured to earn uh, our education and certification, offered a fattened calf to win the girl, and we expect our sacrifices to be blessed. Right now, for many of us, the blessing, the payoff that we have earned might seem a bloody long way away. I think this story says something quite clearly. The fact that this sucks 
doesn't make us ungrateful or religious. It sucks because injustice sucks. This is inherent to our broken condition and it's okay to be angry about it. If you've lost something that you've worked really hard for or if your faith that what you've always wanted is gonna to come to you is slipping away right now. We're smacked in the face of all this now. All our plans, all our careful planning and our saving and our wise choices and our sacrifices. The story of Cain and Abel is simply a depiction of the human condition. Consciousness leading to comparison. Comparison, by the way, linked to unhappiness in every measurable way, according to the experts. Comparison leading to self-pity, to criticism, anger, savagery, corruption, and ultimately death. And yet, even before I get to the redemptive good news that I'm aware this talk urgently needs me to get to, there's still mercy. Justice for a murderer could happen in a few ways in those times. Um, exile is one, payment, or a best friend or family member could justifiably kill you. But the Lord heard Cain's cry for mercy. He put a mark on him, lest any who come upon him should kill him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod. In exile, yes, but there's still the mark, the promise and the protection. A detail that a 6th century BC Jewish listener desperately needed to hear. As soon as Jesus said the words, a man had two sons, to his Jewish audience in Luke 15, the opening to the prodigal son, they would have known immediately what to bring to mind. Cain and Abel, Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and Esau, all framed around two sons and their rights. And as usual in his parables, Jesus flips the expectation in a disorienting way. The younger son in this story isn't righteous Abel or faithful Isaac or clever Jacob. He's reckless and disrespectful and squanders what's been given to him. The older brother is likened to Cain in this story by his location being described as in the field. And he deals similarly with quid pro quo. Like Cain, he's caught up in pure mimetic jealousy when he responds to the father's celebration about his wayward second-born's return. When this son of yours come back, come, came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? He doesn't deserve that. I'm the one who stayed. I'm the one who's been faithful. I'm the one who deserves the fatted calf. The second we forget that we're all the younger brother, that we all fall short, that it's only by grace that we have anything that we have. We slip into the role of the older brother. Injustice becomes personal and religious. Self-righteous indignation whispers in our ears. And the only place that this ever takes us, like both older brothers, is exile away from the house, from the security and joy of knowing the father. Because for the father, there's just love. It's love for both his sons of equal breadth and depth. There is no favourite. But grace demands this to be true. And grace isn't fair. Grace is ridiculous. It's scandalous. Paul describes it as foolishness, utterly mad. And it is lavished on every single one of us. 
and it hounds us and it chases us with its sweet aroma of simple knowing that we know a different way. A way that says, he left the 99 to come and find me when I was astray. Because I'm the widow, the widow with the one cent offering. I'm the worker who turned up late and got full pay. I am the son who squandered it all and returned to be celebrated. It's a way that knows no shortage. This kind of blessing can't ever run out. And it's here for all of us. And for all the people we find it hardest to believe it of. The ungrateful have-it-alls, the COVID-denying protesters, the internet worry, warrior, my side is right, uh, echo chamber jerks on Facebook. Unchanging love, unrelenting blessing, regardless of anything. What Jesus says to us in all of our humanity, all of our imperfection, is that I made you perfect. I have rescued you. I have chosen you. I know what hurts and I'll use it, but you are my salt and light. And I'm calling you to bring a kingdom that works with totally different rules, that forgives, that says you first, that says mercy triumphs, love always wins. The prophetic words this week reminded me and excited me, and actually there were several more all on the same, theme, all on the same theme, of it being God's power. We are his light, but he makes us light. It's his power. None of this is on us. None of this, this was our idea. The only way compassion and forgiveness and generosity and love the only way this stuff pours out of us is when it is first poured into us. Let the Spirit pour this into you this morning. Let him tell you how much he loves you. Let him remind you that there is no shortage. And so, as Ben begins to play, I just invite you now to open yourself to the Spirit again. You can just tell him he's welcome in your own heart and mind. Come Holy Spirit, in all the unfamiliarity of doing this at home, thank you that that doesn't hinder you. Thank you that you are always with us. Will you come now in power and show us what it is to be loved and accepted and free? Be washed away in the waves of his mercy. Rise up to deep. We sing, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. All who are thirsty, all who are. Of his mercy, as deep cries. 